In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Romans. Um, last time we finished speaking, uh, we finished chapters 2 and 3. Um, does anyone remember what we spoke about last time? Chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 2, the focus was on what? The salvation of the Jews. So remember, so far everything that St. Paul has been speaking about in the book of Romans has been addressing... Um, kind of the two groups, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews who felt kind of proud and arrogant in themselves because they were the children of Abraham, because they had received the law, because they were the ones who were circumcised, and they are wanting that kind of they have this special status or consider themselves to have a special status in the eyes of God because they are the children of Abraham and chosen by God from the beginning. And so they look at the Gentiles and they say, no, we are... You know the Gentiles; they have to be circumcised. Um, they are they are not they're, they are, they don't have like the same status as we do. So Saint Paul um, emphasizes in chapter two that even though the Jews were the people who received the circumcision and received the law of Moses, and yet this should not be a point of security for them because they are still in need of salvation because they were not able to fulfill the law, and that salvation is not through the law. So they, he, he tries to bring them down from kind of their lofty p place, their lofty position, to make them realize that the law has not benefited them in terms of bringing salvation, and they were not able to fulfill and to follow the law, so they are in need of redemption and salvation through Christ. Then in chapter 3, he addresses all people, whether the Jews or the Gentiles, and he essentially says, all of us are the same. We, we all are in need of salvation, um, none of us is, is righteous, none of us is good, all of us are sinners, and so we are in need of the salvation that came through Jesus Christ. This is kind of the main points that he covered in chapters 2 and 3. God willing, today we are going to ch uh, cover chapters um, 4 and 5. So, as I said in chapter 3, St. Paul kind of he makes it clear that all are in need of salvation. And so that involves kind of identifying and realizing that we have become, as a, as a species, as a, as, a, as, a, as a race, completely corrupted. Both Jew and Greek, then circumcision and the law did nothing to change that corruption. So in this chapter, in chapter 4, St. Paul is going to speak about how Abraham was called by God while he was still uncircumcised. And that in his state of being uncircumcised, God counted his faith as righteousness apart from the works of the law. So what is the point that St. Paul is going to try to make here? He's saying if Abraham could be considered by God righteous because of his faith prior to him being circumcised, that means that righteousness does not come through circumcision, but righteousness comes through faith. Okay, and so this is the, the point that St. Paul is trying to make here in this chapter for the Jews to understand because the Jews always look to Abraham and he's saying, well, look, Abraham was circumcised. It's true, Abraham was circumcised, but God considered him righteousness through faith, not through circumcision. So he, he starts here. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Okay, so... What is the circumcision that Abraham received? Okay, what, what, was the, what was the purpose of it? Okay, the fatherhood of Abraham 
is according to the flesh because he is our or he is our ancestors okay for if abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before god for what does the scripture say abraham believed god and it was accounted to him for righteousness okay so abraham he did many righteous acts as a result of the faith that he had and he was accounted as righteous because of his faith and not because of his circumcision. Okay, so the circumcision itself was an act of faith. The circumcision itself that Abraham believed what God said and chose to be circumcised and God considered him righteous because of his faith, not because of the substance of the circumcision. It's not that the circumcision brought righteousness, it's that the faith of Abraham brought righteousness and of course we know many of the things that abraham did abraham for instance he left his home um, he did not demand a better share of land when he and lot were quarreling over the land he entertained strangers he interceded for sodom he offered his son as a sacrifice all these righteous acts abraham did okay and these are an evidence of his strong faith before god he is considered righteous why because of his faith because these are the works that were evidence of his faith and, and because he believed God in all these things, not because of his circumcision. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, so St. James, he uses different terminology to describe this. He says what in James chapter 2? He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So here, um, we, we, we have kind of two, two things. St. James is saying, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Okay, but here... St. Paul is saying Abraham is being justified because of his faith, okay? It was accounted for him as righteousness based on his faith. So how do we reconcile these two things? Was his righteousness according to works or was it according to faith? So St. Paul says that Abraham is not justified by works. So what is, he, what is he speaking about? The word works can mean different things in different contexts. When St. Paul here is speaking against works, he is not speaking against the good works like the everyday good works like being kind and generous and patient and loving and forgiving. That's not the kind of work he's speaking about. He's speaking about the work of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, circumcision and the offering of sacrifices and, and the keeping of certain feast days and fasts and all these things that were commanded the, the Jews in the Old Testament. These are the works that he's speaking about. Okay, When St. James speaks about works, he's speaking about the good works that can come from faith right love gentleness patience and so on and so the point that saint james is making is it is impossible to say that a person has faith apart from works i can't say that i have faith but then when it comes time for me to live my life i do not take this faith into account uh, in any of the decisions that i make i don't consider what i should do based on uh you know ba ba based on my faith in god right that's not true faith that's just academic faith that's just memorizing some bible verses that's just having kind of a belief that i proclaim and i say that this is what i believe but when it comes to my real life i don't even make any attempt 
to live according to that faith. So St. James condemns that, that life. He says, no, this is not the way to live. You, ca you can't say that you have faith apart from works. So justification is by works in that sense because the true faith is manifested in our works. And this is what St. James is saying. What St. Paul is saying here is the works of the law do not bring justification. You are not justified before God because of circumcision. You are not justified before God because you are keeping certain rituals. Okay? So there you, have to un you have to keep that in mind because people can attack the idea of, of good works or misunderstand it based on kind of this different uh, way that these two are dealing with this subject. Actually, to the point where Martin Luther, he did not want to even include the book of James in the Bible because he saw it as being contradictory to all of the Pauline epistles. Okay, But when you understand what exactly St. James is speaking about and what is it that St. Paul is speaking about, there is no contradiction. They are actually going together very well. Okay, So a person cannot claim to have faith if they are not striving to do these good works, but the works of the Old Testament are not what bring righteousness. Are we clear on this point before we continue? Okay. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Is this the same verse? This is the same verse. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Okay, what does it mean when he says, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt? What does that mean? that referring to how like because the Jews were given the law in the Old Testament that they were held to the standard of the law mm -hmm. and so it made their debt almost worse like they were more in need of grace yeah so the the idea of salvation by works which is the system of the law is a debt-based system it's essentially saying that if salvation is by works then you are in debt because of your sin and so you have to essentially do a certain amount of good works in order to compensate for your sin and cancel it out. Essentially, you could think of it like that. It's a debt. You know, when you, the, the parable of the, um, the, parable of the, uh, of the unforgiving servant, okay, kind of illustrates this. The servant who owed the, the 10,000 talents to his master and he couldn't pay it, and so he was going to be thrown into prison, but when he asked for mercy his master forgave him the debt because there was no way that he could have paid the debt, right? So if we are in a debt-based system, essentially saying that no amount of work ever, even a whole lifetime's work worth of good works could ever pay off this debt. So to him who works, meaning to him who places his trust in the law, to him who, who thinks that righteousness comes from circumcision and the obedience to the law, and because you are like required to fulfill the entire law, then you are actually in debt. Your wages, the meaning the good works that you do, is actually you're trying to pay a debt that can never be paid. Okay, it's a debt-based system. Okay. Um, however, then he goes on in verse five, 
And again, we have to understand what he means here, because if you misunderstand what he means by work, then you could get a completely wrong interpretation of this verse. He says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So again, if somebody who, who, who wants to, in to believe and interpret that what the scripture says is that good works are relevant and all that matters is that you have faith, well, then you are going to read this verse in that context. You're going to say, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. So he's almost attacking the idea of having works. So if I interpret the word work to mean the general good works that we're talking about, like the Christian virtues of work, then that doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't jive with the other things that St. Paul is saying, and it certainly contradicts what St. James is saying. Okay, But we have to, again, understand this in the context of who he's speaking to. The whole conversation that he has been having at this point is attacking the necessity of obeying the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, circumcision, and so on. And he's speaking to the Jewish people when he is saying this. And he's saying the, the one who does not work, meaning the one who is not circumcised, the one who does not follow the rituals of the Old Testament law, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So now instead of it being a debt-based system, it's a grace-based system. And in the grace-based system, no amount of good work will earn salvation. No amount of, of obeying the Old Testament law will earn salvation because we are forever in debt, and no matter what we do, we cannot pay off the debt. So we are not trying to pay the debt. We, we, it is impossible for us to pay the debt. What, what is it, our good works then? Our good works are not to pay a debt. Our good works are a response to the love of God for us. So God shows love to us, and we, filled with love for God, want to serve him, want to obey him, want to submit to him. It is out of love because we have received his grace that we want to do good works, not because we are trying to earn salvation. Is that distinction very clear? Right? It is, we are not doing work to earn salvation. Now, does that mean that God does not judge based on works? He does. But the, the judgment based on works is not like, well, if you've done a certain amount of work, then, okay, you have, you have like canceled a certain number of sins. No, again, work in the Christian faith is a sign of faith. Right? And the more that I work, this means I have a stronger faith. I, I'm desiring to do more. I'm desiring to love God more. Not to earn a salvation. Not, not to say that if I simply did a certain amount of good works, I would have salvation apart from the blood of Christ. No. But it is a response to the grace that God gives to us. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Okay, these quotations are from Psalm 32, the first two verses, right? Blessed is the one whom God does not consider his sin, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one whom God has, has forgotten his sin, the one whom his sin he remembers no more. Blessed is the one whom God considers to be righteous instead of being a sinner. Right? So this is, again, our we are justified. We are justified in the sight of God. Not because we have not committed any sin, but because through the sacrifice of Christ, we are considered just. We are considered to be just and righteous before God because we have received in us the righteousness of God himself. And again, all of this does not come 
through the law. It does not come through circumcision. There is no external action that I can take in order to produce this. This is something that God has done, something God has chosen to do for us. So then he asks this question. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Right? This is what he's saying here. Like these prophecies or these, you know, these things that King David said. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Okay? He's saying, are these blessings only coming upon the uncircumcised on the circumcised, or are they also coming on the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Right? Again, Abraham was considered righteous by God on account of his faith while he was uncircumcised, not after his circumcision. Okay, So his righteousness in the sight of God was not a result of being circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who, are who also walk in the steps of faith, which are which our father Abraham had st had still uh, had while still uncircumcised. Okay, so he's saying what? Abraham is the father of the circumcised, and Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised. Okay, Abraham was a righteous man while he was uncircumcised, and he because he responded to God in faith while still uncircumcised, and it is the act of faith that brings righteousness. It is not the act of circumcision itself. The circumcision was a seal. He says, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised. A seal meaning it is a sign of the faith, right? Like the fact that Abraham uh, consented to be circumcised is a sign of the faith that he had. But it was not that the righteousness came upon Abraham or his, the justification came on Abraham because he was circumcised, but because he had the faith to listen to God, to submit to God, to obey the will of God, to be circumcised to begin with. Okay? So so it was not his own righteousness, and it was not righteousness that came from circumcision, but it was the righteousness that that was expressed in his faith in, in doing that, not from the circumcision itself. So Abraham is a father, not only of the Jews who followed the law, because they consider him to be their father, because he was the the, the one the first to be circumcised, and they follow him. Abraham was, is, is not their father only because of circumcision, but he is also the father of the Gentiles who are uncircumcised because he did this act of faith while uncircumcised. St. John Chrysostom, he says, Since Abraham was justified and praised while he was still uncircumcised, the Jews came at a later time. Therefore, first, Abraham is a father to the Gentiles, which are related to him through faith. And second, he is also a father to the Jews. In other words, he is the father of both races. So actually, St. John Chrysostom, he looks at it differently. He says, it's not that Abraham was first the father of the Jews 
and then later became the father of the Gentiles. He says, actually, the first act of faith that Abraham did was before he was circumcised. So in that sense, he was the father of the Gentiles first, and then he was the father of the Jews after he, be after he was circumcised. The Gentiles are related to Abraham, not on account of being uncircumcised, but due to their imitation of his faith. In the same manner, the Jews did not benefit by being his children on account of their circumcision if they do not believe. Therefore, you are entitled to claim Abraham as your father if you follow in the footsteps of his faith and while at the same time you find no conflict nor deviation in obeying the law. So the point that St. John Chrysostom is making is all that matters is that you have the faith of Abraham. If you have the faith of Abraham, you consider Abraham your father. And the Gentiles actually... Um, like could, could call him their father first because he expressed his faith and received from God this, this praise um, before even he was circumcised. I know this is kind of deep, so if anyone has any questions, you can stop and ask me. Is everyone following so far, or, or are you confused? Everyone following? Yes? Okay. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Okay, let me read it again. For the, for the promise that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Okay, so what is he saying? The promise that was made to Abraham and to his descendants, the covenant, was not through circumcision, but it was through faith. Circumcision was the act that God asked Abraham to do. But what caused Abraham to do it was the faith that he had. So again, it wasn't the circumcision itself. The circumcision was just the seal. It was the sign. It was the, the physical manifestation and expression and evidence of the faith that Abraham had. But the circumcision itself was not the, the main point. It was the faith that Abraham expressed. So at the time when circumcision was required, okay, it wasn't, it, 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 maybe the people didn't understand this, right? Like the, the, pe the people didn't understand the place that faith had versus circumcision. But now here, St. Paul is trying to correct the Jewish understanding that they've maybe misunderstood this whole time so that they can understand things the right way, okay? Um, Because the law brings about wrath. Sorry, I didn't talk about the second half of this. Okay, for so, so he says what? For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So what is he saying there? He's saying if the Jews adhere to the practice of the law as a sign of being heirs, okay, heirs of the promise through Abraham, they are obeying the law, 
because they are heirs. They are they're getting the inheritance. They are benefiting from the covenant that God made to Abraham. And so if they are only um, if, if they are only fulfilling and satisfying this covenant through the literal application, meaning only through the act of circumcision, and they are not at all sharing in the faith of Abraham, then essentially they are making this promise to no effect. Okay, because essentially you are saying if all that matters is that you are circumcised and you do not need any faith at all, okay, then it's like they are losing this divine promise which God granted to Abraham, okay, because he, Ab Abraham, benefited from this promise because he accepted it in faith, not just by circumcision. So if his descendants, they didn't have the faith of Abraham, but they had only the circumcision of Abraham, then they are not actually recipients. They are not actually like inheriting what it is that was promised to Abraham because they, they are not sharing in the same faith that Abraham had. Okay? In contrast, if those who are uncircumcised and have not practiced the law in the liter literal sense, in the fact in the sense that they, they, they did not get circumcised, yet through faith they became heirs to Abraham, meaning they are sharing the same faith that Abraham had, then they are actually the ones that will inherit the promise. And they are the ones who will become his children. So again, who is the, chi the child of Abraham? The one who shares the faith of Abraham, not the one who is circumcised. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so what does this mean? When a person violates the law of God, they commit sin. This is sin. Disobedience to God is sin. But when a person... Um, knows the law, like the, the, they, they commit sin even if they don't know the law. Like if a person, let's say, not knowing the commandments of God breaks the commandments of God. They sin. It is a sin. Regardless of whether we know the law or we don't know the law, we sin when we break the commandments of God. But when someone is given the commandment of God explicitly and they know what is it that God is commanding, then not only are they sinning, but they are also transgressing the law. This is like a worse, a worse act. Like in one case, maybe I'm committing a sin in ignorance, but in the case when I have the law, not only am I committing a sin, but I'm explicit, explicitly rebelling, transgressing the law that God gave. Okay? This is what St. Augustine says. He says, before the law was issued, it was possible to call a person a sinner, but it was not possible to call him a transgressor. However, now that the law has been delivered, he is no longer just a sinner, but he is a transgressor as well. In this manner, transgression has been added to sin, and so sin has been greatly multiplied. Okay? So again, he is kind of trying to bring the Jews down from their lofty place. He's saying, you guys think that you are so righteous and that you are the children of Abraham and that you have the divine promise, the covenant that, go that God gave to Abraham because you are circumcised and because you follow the law, actually it's the opposite. Because you received the law, and yet you did not follow the law in its completeness, in its wholeness. So when God judges, he is going to judge you more harshly because your, your sin is greater. Because you sinned while knowing the law, whereas the Gentiles sinned without having received the law. Okay? So he's trying to make the point is don't, don't be so proud of yourself 
because you are the recipients of the law. Don't believe that you are the heirs of Abraham because you received the law. Don't think that you have a higher status than the Gentiles because you received the law. Actually, you are worse off. You are worse off now in your status of sin because you have rejected the law. You known the law and you did not live up to it. You did not um, obey it. Okay, so all people, whether the Jews or whether the Gentiles, are in need of salvation, are in need of God's forgiveness, are in need of the grace of God, and so we all look to Christ as the Savior, right? It's not just the Gentiles that are in need of salvation through Christ, it is even the Jews. Do not be so haughty in your belief of your righteousness, your self-righteousness, because you had received the law. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay? So therefore, the Abraham is the father of all the faithful people, whether Jew or Gentile, not just those who received the law and were circumcised, but also those who by faith believed in God. So when he says... To those who are of the faith of Abraham, that's the Gentiles, okay? And to those who are of the law, that's the Jews. So whether of the law or whether of faith, it is, it is, it, 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 all are the children of Abraham through faith. Thus the promise of eternal life and sonship is offered to all the seed, not just the Jews, and all the believers became the children of Abraham. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham, making the covenant with him. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Okay, so when God was making this covenant with Abraham, he called him the father of many nations, okay? And he's saying, God who gives life to the dead. So he's saying, like, these nations that God is speaking about, they do not exist yet. Like, they are not in existence yet. But God can see them, and, and, and it's as though he is giving life to them because God is, is, is telling Abraham about the future, that they are going to be. So it's like God is speaking as though you're speaking about dead people who are actually alive or as though that they were alive, okay? And, and that Abraham is believing in God contrary to hope. Like there was no evidence for Abraham to believe what God said apart from the fact that God told him. God said that you will be the father of many nations at a time when there was no indication. And again, Abraham was very old in age and there was no indication that he could have any children. And so it was completely an act of faith in believing what God said to him, um, not based on any other reason that he could point to to say, yes, I believe that this is actually true and this is going to happen. Okay, so it was contrary to hope. And yet Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old. Already dead meaning he is beyond the age of having children. He is very old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him 
for righteousness, right? The righteousness came from the faith that Abraham had. It, was not, it did not come through circumcision. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Okay, so here the final point that St. Paul is making about this has to do with what, what has been written about Abraham concerning his faith in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so he believed that God granted him Isaac from Sarah's dead womb. Okay, he also believed God would make him the father of many nations uh, through who, who were who, which were not his descendants through the flesh, like like God is the one who brought him this this status of being the father of many nations, and Abraham believed all this in faith. So for us, he's saying like, how does this benefit us? Christ is the one who raises us from the dead and grants us his righteousness as a new and resurrected life, evidenced by our daily walk in him. So just as it, it is, it is like uh, God is resurrecting the the womb of sarah that god is like showing his power and authority over death at the at that time and the time of abraham to make him a father of many nations so also god is demonstrating his power over death for us okay that that he, that he is granting us a resurrected life that he is promising us the resurrection from the dead okay so we are sharing in the faith of abraham because we also believe that god has authority over death it is not written for his sake alone, but also for us. This message, this, this faith that Abraham is proclaiming is the same faith that we are called also to accept and to believe that God has power over, the, over death. Okay? Any questions about chapter 4 before we go on to chapter 5? Yes. We have a question from YouTube. Okay. Uh, is Abraham still the father of the Jews since the Jews don't believe in the Messiah? So the Jews, the, the, the non-Christian Jews, they believe that he is their father. They consider him to be their father from the very beginning because they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so for them, they are still living in the Old Testament, right? There's, no, there's been no change from the Old Testament for them up until this point, the Jewish people. But here what St. Paul is saying as far as for the Christians, who is it that can say that, father, that Abraham is their father? It is those with faith. So the church actually is the descendant of Abraham. All the believers are the descendants of Abraham, whether Jews or whether Gentiles or whoever. So anyone that has the faith of Abraham can call Abraham their father from, from our Christian perspective. Any other comments before we move on? Okay. Chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So why is it that we have peace with God? And what does it mean to have peace with God? We are at peace with God. We are not in enmity with God. We have been reconciled to God. Our relationship with God has been restored. Okay? Why? Not because we have earned that relationship. Not because we have been able to pay the debt that we owe him. Not because we have 
change something about our actions and behaviors, okay? But because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? We also have liberation from sin. We have the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We have the ability to overcome sin through the grace of God working in us. Because we have been justified by God through his grace, it is a, a work of love on God's part to restore us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so the, the, the Son has, has come to reconcile us, to bring us peace again with God, to restore our relationship, and to grant us again access by faith to the grace of God, that the grace of God would manifest in us, that instead of God looking at us in judgment because of our sin, that he would say, like what we said in the, in the Psalms in the previous chapter, that God is, is going to forgive our sins. Blessed is the one whom God grants the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so God would grant us the forgiveness of sins, that God would remember our sins no more, that God would separate us from our sins and to restore our relationship with him again. Therefore, because all of this is true, we are rejoicing. We are rejoicing in our newfound status as the sons and daughters of God. We are thankful. We are hopeful. We are rejoicing. We, we thank God for the grace that he has given us. And again, in all these things, having realized all these things that God has done for us, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we choose to do the good works of God. We choose to forgive just as we have forgiven. We choose to have mercy just as we have received mercy. We choose to do good for one another just as God does good for us. This is the response of uh, a person who has received the grace of God is these good works. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So as a result of having peace with God, and as a result of having a transformed life, we now see tribulations in the world very differently than we did before. Instead of seeing that tribulations are simply you know, evil experiences, things that we want to flee and run away from, we see them actually as opportunities to see the power of God working even more mightily in us. We see it as a way for God's grace to touch us and to transform us and to change us, right? We see the transformative power of tribulations. We see them as a way to help us detach from the world and to embrace the heavenly things. And he says what tribulation produces perseverance, meaning when we are go through suffering and, and struggles, we learn to persevere and to be able to endure more and more and more because we are being kind of trained in order to do so. When we go through difficulties, God grants us his grace to be able to endure and to persevere. And as we are persevering and as we are growing in faith, our, our, our character begins to change. We, we, we begin to be spiritually mature. We begin to see the work of God it working in our lives more clearly because we are in need. Instead of feeling that the world is kind of offering me everything that I need, I have this need inside myself because I'm suffering and I turn to God and he gives me he, he responds to me and I hear his voice and I feel his presence and I feel that and, and this experience causes my character to change. And then finally now as my character is changing and I'm growing, I begin to have hope 
My hope is in God. My, my hope is in the ultimate victory that God has over the world and over the devil. And instead of placing my hope on the temporal things, on the superficial things, my hope is in God. And so there's a transformation that begins to happen. And this is the life of sanctification, right? That the, the idea that we are justified by faith, like maybe this, is, this justification is what happens in baptism. This justification is, is what happens when we become children of God. But then the rest of our life is, con is con you know, um, consists of some, some process which we call sanctification, which is the process of becoming more and more Christ-like in everything that we do. And so this is what he's describing here. God allows us to experience difficulties. These difficulties make us to grow in faith and to be able to endure. And through this, we gain spiritual maturity and our character grows and we become more faithful, become better people. And then that character begins to produce more hope so that even though we are in the midst of tribulation, our hope is completely in God and we are not afraid and we are not feeling abandoned, but instead we feel that our, our ultimate kind of hope is in God and eternal life, okay? So this process, this is why actually we are, we are thankful. Like, why is it that we are glorying in tribulations? We glory in tribulations because it produces this process in us. Because every Christian can grow in faith through it. This is why we glory. Because of my greatest desire is to be Christ-like, and my greatest desire is to be pleasing to God, then we glory in tribulations. But if, if my desire is not to be so, like if my desire is not to be Christ-like, then maybe our re response is we flee from tribulations. We see tribulations as an enemy, as something we don't want to endure. Now, of course, none of us want to endure tribulations. But as we are in it, we begin to identify how God is using these tribulations for our benefit, and we accept it from him because we know that it is good for us. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so he says what? Our hope does not disappoint. We have hope in God, and we know that God is not going to disappoint us. We experience the love of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. We experience God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in us, is working in the world, is, is, is helping us to draw closer to God every day. And when we are filled with the Spirit and we are not quenching the Spirit, we feel, feel more fully the connection and engagement with God. When we go to God in prayer, we feel it more strongly. We feel that we are in the presence of God all the time. And this causes us to love him more and to draw closer to him. And then he says, "What? look at what is it that Christ actually did. Christ did not die for us in a time when we deserved it. He did not die when we were godly and righteous. No, he died for us in a time when we were unworthy, when we were sinners, when we were undeserving in every way. Okay, so this, th this again demonstrates the love that Christ had. Maybe someone would die for a righteous man. Maybe someone died for a hero. Maybe someone would sacrifice themselves for someone who was good. But Christ sacrificed himself for us who are not good. St. Augustine, he says, He has loved us while we were his enemies and indulging in sin. In spite of that, the full truth is reported in these words. You hate all workers of iniquity. On this account, it becomes truly amazing and divine 
But even when he despises what is in us, which is sin, yet he loves us. Actually, what he despises in us is the picture of things he has not created in us. He despises what he has not made in us and loves what he has created in us. He despises wickedness and he loves the soul that yearns for her salvation. Right? Christ has full love for us, which is why he sacrificed himself for us. But what is it that he hates? He hates the sin that is in us, the thing that he did not create, the blemish, the, the flaw that we accept on ourselves. This is what he hates. This is what he wants to remove. But he doesn't hate us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So he's saying if, if God could perform such an act of grace and of love and selflessness, which was the act of his own death, giving up himself to death, in, in a status when we were still completely in sin, how much more is the grace of God poured out on us now that we have been reconciled, that we are no longer the enemies of God? How much more will the grace of God be poured out on us? How much more blessing will be received? How much stronger will our relationship be? I, I, how much will he follow through with his, uh, his, his, his acts of love for our salvation now that we have been reconciled, much more so even than before when we were still in enmity with him? Okay, so we rejoice again in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, this is a source of rejoicing. Whenever someone is, is sad and down, you know, you should meditate on maybe what we take for granted on a regular basis, which is the salvation that God offers us. The idea that even though I look at my life and it seems dark and bleak and maybe difficult times and difficult experiences, and yet I have hope that after all of this is done, not not. I mean, firstly, God is using it for my glory, like like what we said, that it produces in us perseverance and character and hope. But even after all this life is done, that I have hope and an eternity of bliss and joy with Christ in heaven, that this so should bring us hope. This should it should bring us a sense of joy. And maybe if we just meditate on this and think about this and remind ourselves of this on a daily basis, it will make a huge difference in the way that we see the world and ourselves. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so he makes a very important theological point here. A very important point that we're going to think about for a little bit. So he says what? Who is the one man he's speaking about? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world? Adam. Okay, so he's saying sin entered into the world because of the sin of Adam. And his sin resulted in the corruption of nature uh, and the corruption of mankind. So the corruption of our nature and the corruption of the nature of the creation, all of creation. So just as through one man, sin entered the world, like the whole world and death through sin. And death spread, right? Death became like a characteristic of the world that never existed before. Death did not exist before. There was, no, there was only life. 
Like if God is the one who created everything and he is the source of everything and he is life and there is no death in him, so there could not be death because God sustains and brings life to everything. If there was death, then that means somehow that thing that was dying was being separated from God. But nothing at that point had been separated from God. Everything was alive in the fullness of what God intended. But when man sinned, sin entered to the world and death entered into the world because of sin and death spread to everyone. And this death is manifested in different ways. There is the physical death. We know that from the time of the fall, Adam and Eve died, and all of us afterward die. There's the physical death. There's the spiritual death, the separation from God that happened, again, at the time of the fall. For the first time now, it says uh, about Adam and Eve that they heard the, the God walking in the garden, and they were afraid, and they hid themselves, right? They were afraid of God. They, they, they were separated from God. That had never happened before. This is the spiritual death. Okay. Also, it says what the, the, the death that spread through the whole world is a corruption of everything that God had made. This world, as we know it today, is not the same world that God made. It is a corrupted version of that world. Okay. And then he says what? Because all sinned. Okay. And this is important. He's saying that all of us, meaning all of mankind, sinned in Adam. So what is it that we received because of, or what is it that we inherited from Adam? What was the consequence on us as a result of the sin of Adam? Well, one, we inherit the death, okay? We inherit all these forms of death. We inherit the corrupted nature, the desire to sin, right? The, 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 the desire for the things that are against God. This is what we struggle in, okay? We also actually sinned in Adam because that's why he says because all sinned so we all became sinners in Adam himself and this is when we speak about the original sin when we speak about original sin it, it's constituted of two things the first one is the corrupted nature that we received at the time of the fall the second is the actual guilt of sin itself okay but when I say the guilt of sin I'm speaking about not the personal guilt. Like there's such thing as a personal guilt. Like I, if I personally commit a sin, it's like I'm guilty of that specific sin. Here we call it the natural guilt. Our nature sinned in Adam because we all share the same nature. So we all sinned as a, as a, as a, as a race together in Adam. This is what St. Ambrose says. Through Adam, I have fallen. I have been expelled from paradise and I have died. How would God retrieve me except by finding me guilty through Adam since that is my condition? Now, however, I am justified through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So we bear this natural guilt with Adam, and this is the state of humanity up until the time of Christ. And this is what baptism cures. This is what baptism heals. It removes from us this natural sin, this natural guilt that we committed and rejuvenates uh, our life and gives, gives us new, new life to our nature, okay? A nature that had died uh, in corruption, okay? Um, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Okay, so what is he saying? Adam transgressed a specific commandment. What was the commandment that Adam transgressed? What was the sin that Adam committed? He ate from the tree of uh, knowledge. And was there a law against that? God told him not to. God told him, so there's a law, right? So there was a law saying, do not eat of this tree. And so Adam and Eve ate of the tree. So is this transgression or not? It's transgression. Because they knew exactly the law and they transgressed the law. But what about the law of Moses? They hadn't received the law of Moses yet. Okay? So here is saying, until the law, until the time of Moses, whenever the fullness of the law was received, sin was in the world, meaning people were sinning all throughout the time between Adam to Moses. There was sin. But sin is not imputed in the sense that it was not considered a transgression. It was still sin, but it was not a transgression against any specific law because the law had not yet been given. Just what St. Paul was saying previously about essentially when you transgress a law, it's worse than just committing sin. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, meaning there was death all throughout. Even though there was no transgressions of the law throughout that time because the law had not been given, but death was reigning even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Remember, the transgression of Adam was eating of the tree of knowledge, but nobody committed that sin from the time of Adam all the way until the time of Moses. Like after the time of Adam, there was no transgression, right? Because the transgression is against the law. The only law that there had been given was do not eat of the tree of knowledge, okay? Everything else that came afterward was still sin, even though the, the fullness of the law of Moses had not yet come, okay? It was only when the law was given that the depth of sin of mankind was fully revealed that now having received the law at the time of Moses, people could look back and say, we have been living in such sin for generations and generations since the very beginning, and that's when it became fully known. And this is why when St. Paul says, what was the purpose of the law? It was to make us realize how in deep in sin we have been. That's what the law did. The law did not give us the ability to overcome that, didn't give us the ability to be holy, all it did was it showed us who we are like a mirror. St. Athanasius, he says, By committing sin, man became fallen, and everything was disturbed by his fall. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. The earth became cursed. Hell was opened up. Paradise was closed. The heavens became clouded. And man ultimately became corrupt and beastly like the animals. At the same time, the devil gained grandeur, gained grandeur and arrogance toward us. Therefore, God, in his merciful love, did not desire man, whom he had created in his image, to be destroyed. And he asked, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? This is what was said in Isaiah chapter 6. Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? When all were silent, the son replied, here I am, send me. He was therefore told, go. And man was delivered to him as the word became incarnated. By putting on the flesh, man became wholly good. For man was delivered to him as to a physician 
who would heal him from the sting of the snake. Consequently, he would grant life to man, resurrecting him from death, illuminating him and dispelling the darkness. By being incarnated, the Lord renewed the reasoning nature. He recovered and restored all things back to goodness and perfection. So in the incarnation, the nature of man became healed. The grace of God came upon us and we were able to draw closer to God again, to be restored again to the original state that God wanted man to be in in the Garden of Eden. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by which the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So he's saying we became sinners through the sin of one man, who is Adam, and we all participated with him in that sin, even though we were physically not present when he sinned. However, we are justified also through the work of one man. You know, just as we became sinners in Adam, we also became justified in Christ, even though also we were not physically present. We were not physically present on the cross. We did not physically receive his righteousness or do the righteous acts of Christ. But through the, the, the righteousness of Christ, it became imputed to all of us. We all received it even though we were not there. And that's what baptism is. In baptism, we receive the righteousness of God. In baptism, we are crucified with Christ, even though we are not actually crucified. And we are resurrected with Christ, even though we are not actually resurrected, not in the way that Christ was. And yet he gives us this blessing. He gives us, it, it is attributed to us, from God to us. This is why when Christ does something, it becomes a means by which we can participate in it. Okay, and this is what Christ did. St. Gregory, the wonder worker, he says, Sin entered into the world through the flesh, and death reigned through sin over all mankind. Yet sin was demolished through the likeness of the same flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, through the burial of the flesh and the revelation of the firstborn of the resurrection, who is Christ. Sin has been conquered and death has been dismantled of his authority that, his lay, that has laid the foundation of righteousness that has spread throughout the world through faith, as well as through the preaching of the kingdom of heaven among mankind and the building of friendship between God and men. So, as much as we are guilty through Adam, we are also made righteous and receive grace and the gift of salvation through Christ. And this is why we call Christ the second Adam, right? He undid everything that Adam did. And, but when he says the free gift is not like the offense, he means that the free gift is better than the offense. The work that, uh, that Christ did in us is far greater than what is it that Adam did for us. Like the negative consequences that we received in Adam's sin is, is small compared to the grace that we received through the righteousness of Christ and through the acts of salvation of Christ. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, 
much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So as much as we received such condemnation for the whole human race through the sin of one person, how much more will all of humanity receive grace, the gift of righteousness, and life through the one man, Jesus Christ, who is far greater than Adam? So his influence on us is far greater than the influence of Adam. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, a righteous act, and the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So again, how much more is the work of Christ greater than the work of Adam? That through Adam we fell to sin and separation from God, but through Christ we are reconciled to God and we are offered eternal life. St. John Chrysostom, he says, Sin is powerful as it produces death and condemnation, whereas grace not only redeems one sin, but all the sins that follow. Right? Death came from a single sin, from a single man, but the blood of Christ justifies us not from just one sin, but from all sins committed, the sins of the past and the sins of the future. Right? What Christ did was offer forgiveness for every sin that every person ever committed, past or future, everyone. He offers that, okay? Um, and so we receive the abundance of grace, right? This is what he's saying, is we receive the abundance of grace. What are some of the things that we receive in grace from God? We have been liberated from punishment because in our sins we should be punished, and that's what death is, is a punishment for sin. We have been liberated from evil, that we are no longer are the under the influence of evil, but 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 Christ has has granted us freedom from sin. We have been we have received a new birth, right? We have been born again in the waters of baptism. We have received the gift of resurrection and the resurrected life. The Lord Jesus Christ has granted us salvation, adoption, and holiness. We have become children of God, not just servants of God, but children of God, that we will be able to live a life of holiness in Him. We have become brothers of the only begotten Son and have a share in his inheritance. It says we have become heirs with Christ, that whatever it is that Christ, the Son of God, inherits from the Father, we also have inheritance, even though we have done nothing to deserve inheritance. We are considered his body, the body of Christ, and he is our head, and consequently we have become united with him. This is another source of grace, another grace that God gives us. So it is the realization of all of these, all of this grace that Christ offers us, even though we are undeserving, that should make us to respond in love and in service and in faith to him, right? So you see what, 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 what St. Paul is teaching is far more elevated than we have salvation through circumcision. We are the children of God through circumcision. In a very limited, um, worldly mind, would someone think that it's a simple matter of we have circumcision and we have salvation? No, actually, what St. Saint Paul is like is like is making it making it known the depth and the magnitude of what actually we have been offered as a free gift to us, not because we have earned it, not because we have circumcision, but because of the love and the grace of God toward us. For as by one man's disobedience, 
many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, right? Through the sin of the one, Adam, we received the nature of rebellion, we received the guilt of sin, we became sinners in Adam, okay? And thus we continue to live in sin and separation from God. But through Christ's act of obedience to the cross, the act of salvation that Christ did on our behalf, we received a transformed nature to allow us to live in service and obedience and love and holiness and to want and to seek righteousness, that we are made righteous in Christ. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law brought offense. Remember, the law made us realize the magnitude of our sin. This is what St. Augustine says. The law came so that rebellion increased since prohibition aroused desire and inflamed it. The moment that God said certain things were prohibited, that's the moment we wanted it even more and we did it even more. That is how rebellion, which did not exist before the law came about. Rebellion did not exist before the law because there was no law to rebel against. There was sin, but there was no law written that we would then read and become inflamed with rebellion to rebel against the law of God. So the moment that the law came, the offense actually increased. The moment we are restricted, the moment we rebel more. Okay, so in that sense, when the law entered, the offense abounded. Where there is no law, there is no rebellion. It is through the law that the power of sin increased. Besides, there was no assistance from grace and there was no prohibition from sin. This is what St. Augustine said. So as when the law came, all that happened is that we sinned even more. But when sin abounded, grace abounded even more than the sin. God responded to our sinfulness. He did not respond to our sinfulness by destroying us. He, he responded to our increased sin by more grace. More grace to cover the sin that we were now sinning against him. And this grace led us to righteousness and eternal life in Christ. Any comments or questions before we conclude? I know this is... Uh, it's it's difficult. There's 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 a lot of concepts related to salvation, but the more we understand it, I think it gives us a really good sense and 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 familiarity with really our faith and what we believe and the beauty of it to make us see how much Christ actually did for us. Yes. So in the, in the creed we say um, uh, we are baptized um, for the forgiveness of sins. For the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. Mm. The, um, but I, I don't understand the concept of inheriting a sin. I can understand inheriting death, inheriting corruption. But how can like a baby that is not born, uh, that just got born and is becoming baptized, how did he inherit that sin? Um, yeah, I just don't understand. And in, in the... In the Gregorian liturgy, we say when when we, when the uh, priest is talking on behalf of the humanity. Yeah, this is uh, I ate of the. I ate the fruit. Yeah. yeah. So. So, this is where we make the distinction between 
like the actions that we did by nature versus personally. So we are not personally guilty of the sin because we were not personally there to commit sin. But Adam was representing all of humanity in him. Like It's like we were all in him by our nature. And so when we say I ate of the tree, it's not I ate in the personal sense. It's I ate as a nature. Our nature ate. Our nature, our collective human nature is one of rebellion. Our collective human nature is one that sought to eat of the tree. You know, let's say Adam and Eve didn't eat of the tree. It would have been only a matter of time before someone ate of the tree, right? Because exactly like what St. Augustine is saying here is the moment that there is a law, it makes one even more desiring to do the action prohibited by the law. And that again is our nature, right? So, so this is this is what it means that we are inheriting the sin of Adam. Okay? That we are as 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 our nature is guilty of the sin of Adam, not as us as individuals are guilty of that sin. So it's like a sickness that we are born with, right? It's kind of like you can have a, a child that inherits a disease from their mother or even as a consequence of a sin that the mother did, like let's say the mother is a drug addict, the child can be born a drug addict. So even though the child did not participate in the sin of taking drugs, right? So, so it's like we are born in a state of sickness, in a state of disease. And so in baptism, we are healed of the disease. We are healed of the nature of our disease. We are healed of the actual disease itself or the actions that are re- like related to that disease. Like the original sin is an action that we are guilty of in birth as our nature is guilty. And we are healed and cured of that sickness in baptism. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for every opportunity that you allow us to read your word and, word and to understand it. We ask, O God, that you allow us to understand and digest and, and learn about all of the things that you have done according to your grace for us to draw us closer to yourself and to grant us salvation. Help us, O Lord, to meditate on this and that every time we are feeling sad or feeling alone or feeling, O Lord, that this world is filled with difficult trials and troubles, that we remember your acts of love that you have done for us and to meditate on them and to be overjoyed at the life that you have given us and what you are preparing us for. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for everything you do, O Lord, according to your will, let it be done in our lives. And help us, O Lord, to meditate on all of these beautiful things and to grow in them day by day. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.